Jesus is on the cross. Our Savior has just spoken his last words. It is finished. They broke the legs of the two thieves, uh, criminals, one on either side of him, but Jesus already being dead. They broke their legs to have them suffocate and die quicker because the religious leaders were demanding that they take these men down before the evening fell of that preparation day, the Sabbath of, of the Passover. And, uh, but Jesus was already dead. So they didn't break his leg with their big metal mallet. They, but a soldier just pierced him in his side and out came blood and water. And so really that's, you know, you think of the song the hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. Lose all their guilty stain, lose all their guilty stain. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. Father, we thank you this morning for the blood of Jesus that's been said before It'll be said again because we love being forgiven. This doesn't make us want to go out and do bad things so we can get forgiven. It makes us want to live a life that represents you and your kindness and grace. If we're truly born again and we truly have seen this, we are changed. So, Lord, we also know that we're in process. So even though we've been changed by our faith in Christ, those of us who truly believe in you, we also know that we need some continual changing, some renewing, some work inside, and we pray that your word would have its way in our lives today. We didn't come here to punch a clock and say we went to church. We came here to meet with you and meet with your people together and celebrate you and honor you and hear from you. And so we pray with expectation that you would meet us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, they shall look upon him whom they've pierced. The scripture was fulfilled that was spoken in Zechariah as we ended last week. And now, verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing forth a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. That's not a typo. About a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid yet. So they laid Jesus there because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. We also know from the other Gospels that it's a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea was his tomb for his family, and it was carved out of stone. Imagine that. You know, no dynamite in those days, no borehole drillers or, you know, Sawzalls, or you know, all this stuff. He paid, he was a rich man, so he could pay, you know, I don't know how many guys rotating, you know, chinking out that, digging out this cave. 
But we'll come to that later. Joe's secret, his secret discipleship comes out as he takes the body of Jesus. You see, Joseph of Arimathea, can I call him Joe and Nick? Is that all right? All right. It is his nickname. All right. So, uh, well, it gets worse. Okay. Their fear, their fear is no different than the rest of the leadership team people. The people that had something to lose had something to fear. And these guys are no different than anybody else. I'll take you back. I can just read it to you in John twelve forty two, uh, As Jesus is being uh, realized there in the community and seen and prophecies are being fulfilled and Isaiah has spoke about they're not listening, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers... Many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, which meant not just find another church to go to. It meant your income, no Jews would go to you for your business, which meant no friends would come over for dinner or invite you. Anybody apart, It was the shunning of all shunnings. Got it? lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now think about that. People will praise you for your great singing voice. Not me, you. (laughs) People will praise you who have good singing voice. They'll praise you for your musical ability, won't they? People will praise you. People will praise you if you can take an oblong ball and throw it just right. And if you're a guy who can reach out with one hand, now today you don't even need two hands. The guys have gotten so good. And and I do enjoy football. You know, they'll praise you for being able to catch a ball. People will praise you if you're very clever and your words are very funny and slick and you know how to cut other people down. People will praise you if you're an orator of other kinds because you can speak beautifully. People will praise you if you're a great actor. A great actor. They'll praise you. People will praise you if you're good with money and know how to make millions of dollars. People will praise you if you're good looking. Like, you made that happen. (laughs) Thanks, I worked really hard on it because... And maybe people do, but people will praise you for so many things. The picture I have in my mind is, say it's me up here speaking, and, or somebody giving a speech somewhere of any kind. And the whole crowd is just, yeah, it's, oh, it's amazing. And you look over, and somewhere over there is Jesus with his head in his hands, maybe praying for you because of your heart, maybe crying for you because of your pride. Maybe seeing that what you're saying versus who you are are such different things that it just breaks his heart. They loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. But what does that mean? It means there is praise of God. We give praise to God freely as we should, and that's a clear understanding to us is that He deserves praise. But somehow, God does praise. So, in other words, the person could be speaking and everyone could be throwing tomatoes at him. 
or her, spewing out vehement words against that person, and Jesus could be standing and applauding. But their fear, Joseph and Nicodemus, was no different than the rest of the Jewish people that had something to lose. People that have something to lose, and in their mindset they do have something to fear. People that have nothing to lose have nothing to fear. And I think it was a guy named Jesus who said, they that seek to save their lives will lose it, and they that lose their life for my sake shall find it. We're so afraid of losing our identity and such, and yet that's exactly where we find life. Uh, Am I going to tell you that I perfectly understand it? Nope. But I believe it with all my heart. And the closer and the longer I get to him, the longer I walk with him, the more I really see the need and the desire just to lose my life in Jesus. So they're no different than the other people, but they're also in this regard. Joe and Nick are no different than Pilate. Pilate had something to lose. And he feared to speak up. It's not just these guys. It's not just the Jews. It's anybody, anytime, anywhere. It's the same fear. So lose position, lose respect, lose the, lose the life they know. Now, now, some people look at this, that they look at Joseph and Nicodemus, and they say, well, you know, it's really kind of too little, too late. And I understand, what I understand why they say that. These guys didn't fully stand with Jesus when he was alive. How, they did have some words of, of rejection of the attitude the Pharisees were taking. They each, if Nicodemus spoke and said, we don't judge a man in John 7. It was not right up at the crucifixion, but earlier, we don't judge a man before we hear him. He stood at one of the meetings when they were starting to rail on Jesus. Uh, And it says that uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Mark did not agree or consent to the plan that they have to destroy him. So it isn't that they never said anything, but they didn't stand with Jesus fully, and not until now. And how often do words and actions of people after the death of a loved one only then come out that should have been before the person died? How often does that happen? All of a sudden, now, now there's all the praise of the good that they did, if they did good. There's the love shown. There's the action taken. Sometimes it's what it takes to motivate a person, a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, an uncle, an aunt, somebody, a friend, to, to get motivated in the right direction. It's not all bad, but isn't it sad that it takes us until somebody dies sometimes to actually appreciate them fully? Hmm. So... But here's the deal. The disciples ran and hid. They didn't come asking for the body of Jesus. (laughs) So Joseph was rich, didn't consent, but he's a secret disciple. Uh, Don't look on the back of your bulletin right now. You can read the whole story later. It's there. But, uh, you know, in China, there's a group church meeting, 30 or 40 people. Uh, They just got going in the door, burst these policemen, and they have their rifles, and they say, all right. Anyone who wants to uh, get out of here right now, leave, because otherwise, if you stay, you can stay and face the consequences. And for a minute, nothing, and then somebody pops up, and then another, and then five or six. 
And they go, this is your last chance. Now leave or face the consequences. And everybody's silent and sit there. And the soldiers go, they take their rifles off and put them down. Okay, now we can have church. <laughs> we all got saved a while back, and we've been looking for a Bible study we could go do, but we kind of had to make sure there's no government plants here and that we were among true Christians. Hmm. A secret disciple. So, it also tells us in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, when it mentions this issue, it talks about Joseph of Arimathea and says he was also waiting. He was not only a a right kind of guy, an upright kind of guy, a good guy, but he was waiting for the kingdom of heaven. He was waiting for the kingdom. It didn't say of heaven, just the kingdom. What does that mean? He's a secret disciple of Jesus. And he's waiting for the kingdom. Waiting for the kingdom in Israel meant, do you know in the book of Revelation, the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth before the new heavens and new earth? Did you know that's how it goes? It's right there. And some of you already know this, but you might not. All right, where is it that Jesus rules and reigns from? Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And the Jewish people, they don't know, of course, here now the book of Revelation. They know the Old Testament. That is, the Revelation is the continuation of what God already said he was going to do. And God said he's going to restore Israel out of all their troubles, and he's going to rule and reign from there and be victorious over all the earth. And he was waiting for the kingdom, which means he believed in the kingdom coming. He believed in Jesus as the Messiah of that kingdom. He believed that eventually Jesus is going to conquer and bring the rule of God. Both Joseph and Nicodemus are waiting. But they're also, there's a good side to their waiting. That's right. And there's also another side. They're waiting like a lot of people are waiting for God to come, to rule, to make life easy. (laughs) But... That's the rough side, a little tough. If God's already revealed to you or to me things that he wants to do in our life, and we have this, as my pastor put it, an inbox. And God puts something in your inbox. You know, he's not like the boss at work or your supervisor who just keeps loading up your inbox until it goes to the sky. God puts something in your inbox and he says, I'll wait to give you the next thing till you do the thing I just gave you to do. I don't know if it's completely a perfect example, this is how God works, but I I believe there's much there for me. I have found that there's things God won't, I can pray all day long for God to change things. There I got this inbox. And God's very patient. And he's not moved by emotion. I'm not saying he doesn't care. Don't misunderstand. Not moved by emotion is that you're not going to, I'll turn on the tears. (laughs) One time my sister was trying to talk to some agency that was giving her a rough time, and I I was talking to him for her. And she says, no, you've got to give me the phone. You don't know how to cry. (laughs) If I cry, and she was sincere. She was frustrated. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on her, but... She also acknowledged that she knew how to cry on the phone and be frustrated so they'd respond. You're not going to, 
God's not like the person on the other end of the phone. Through the way it appears, he's looking into my heart. (laughs) So he's not motivated that way. He loves you too much to let you manipulate him. It's not a good world for you if you can manipulate God because it means you're out of control. People who manipulate are out of control of what really matters in life. We've all been there to some degree. So this guy, you know, he's waiting, and, you know, I'm waiting for God, for direction, for help, but I'm resisting change either because of fear or my comfort zone or even laziness. And, you know, I can pray all day. You see, it's easy to get into a waiting-to-serve-him pattern. You kind of, I don't misunderstand again what I'm going to say because I believe we should take care of our families and be engaged with our children and et cetera. Um, But don't miss it either. Don't miss this. You can see a pattern sometimes. It's like, well, I'm a teenager. Uh, when I when I get when I go to college, then I'm going to really get serious about the Lord because I'll be in in the adult mode, you know. Well, now I'm at college, and you know I'm so busy with my schoolwork, and I got my friends who aren't really as excited about Jesus and being totally committed. When I get out of college, then I will really turn it on for the Lord. Oh, I'm out of college, but now I really need to start my career or my marriage. You know, when we get married, but when we get married, me and my mate, we will we will serve the Lord wholeheartedly together, and, and then we get married, and then it's like all about us. You know, which is kind of cute for about two months. <laughs> and then the rest of the people around you are like sickened <laughs> by how life is all about you two. You know what I mean? Am I being too harsh here? <laughs> they love you, but and it's sweet, but you know, there's more to life than just you two and it turning inward. And, and if, or if you're single and you're career-oriented or whatever, and then it's, well, when we have kids, then we'll get serious about serving the Lord because we've got to raise our And then you have kids, well, when, when we don't have toddlers anymore, you know, they're sick all the time. They give grandpa colds. They're, <laughs> they're, they're this, they're that, you know, but when they get into school, then it'll kind of, then they're in school and it's like, well, the kids are in school and there's so many programs. When they get in high school and they're kind of more on their own, then they're in high school and it's even worse. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's like, we're going to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And can you serve the Lord through all those things wholeheartedly? Yes, you can. Of course you can. But you also have to make decisions. They're not going to be just all made for you. And you don't want every decision that needs to be made in your life made for you. Because sometimes that's... When you tell somebody who's very sick and needs to go into a nursing home and they won't and they'll live alone, you say, listen, you need to make a decision now before you fall and break your hip and then all the decisions get made for you. You get what I'm saying? Talking about there? And it can go, don't go backward from that. There's decisions that you need to make sometimes. And I don't speak this as a perfect person. But I know this, is that these, you know, you can, the, the work, God can do miracles. God can do anything, and God can open doors that no man can shut. Right now, if you need an open door that it just seems impossible for you, that this could work out, your God is bigger than you think. I, I believe that whole, I cannot list for you the miracles that impossibly have happened in our life, Gail and I, in the last two years, let alone the last 37 years. They got it right. 
That's pretty good. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. So, so we, I've seen so many outward miracles, and I believe in them, and I want them, and I pray for them, and I pray with you for them. So God does great miracles, but the greatest miracle is the miracle he does in you. I know that. Now, this one I know personally, because my faith has not increased all that much by the miracles God's done around me. I find I can go right back down to the same unbelief that I was at before, after the miracle's over and the excitement's over. That's human nature, my friends. Israel in the wilderness. Take your pick. It's everywhere. But I find that when God shows me something I cannot change in me, and yet he changes it in me, somehow I begin to yield to him. Somehow he begins to draw me out. Somehow I face the fear or the laziness or the whatever. And he changes me from the inside. You can't take that away from me. It doesn't fade. It's permanent. Oh, you can get wavering, of course, but God changes you. Isn't that the greatest change in your life? When he's, he's given you love for someone you hated, you realize God's real. More than I pray for a couch and the couch is there. We prayed for a couch in, when I was in the youth ministry in this youth hostel. Lord, give us a couch, a group of us. And that day, four couches showed up on our porch. We had a big one of those big porches covered. We didn't know where to put them. But I don't know how much that changed my life. It did help me pray for things more. But my life would not have changed if when God showed me, you're not loving these people in the house. In fact, you're bitter against that one, and you think you're better than that one. And you need to be set free by the blood of Jesus to love people that you don't love. That changed my life. And that took time. And that took participation by me. It wasn't, I'll just pray and God will fix it. You with me? You don't have to be. But you'd be wise (laughs) because it's true. So, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, you, it's, it's kind of that same. It's not just other people I watch where, okay, you could give this guy money to help him because he's in a devastated state. And there are times where you're in a devastated state and it's not your fault. So don't, again, I'm not saying anybody who's been broke or in trouble because I've been there. Well, and to some degree it might have been my fault. But when you give money to someone who doesn't change, who perpetually is always broke because of the way they handle money, Money doesn't change them, does it? If somebody says, help me, I need to clean this mess up and fix these things and get organized, and they don't change, a week or two later, everything's right back where it was. This is the change I'm talking about, and it's a change that every one of us is in process with, I'm sure. Not just me. Please tell me it's not just me. Okay. You can go home now. I was kind of, I came here very worried today, but um, now I feel better. Misery loves company. <laughs> okay, so, so change that comes from within. And, and the problem is, less some of you or people we know who are so motivated in every single area of their life that they can just stamp it off like, a, I do this, I do that, I'm faithful on this, I'm totally disciplined on that, everything, everything, everything is great. Then their danger is, first of all, they're probably deceived that they think everything's that way, and they're going to be like the Pharisees. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I tithe of all I have. I fast twice a week, and I'm not like that publican back there in the back. 
you know, and God said, Jesus said, the man in the back went home who just said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He went home justified. So lest you think that it's Rick's teaching us that you better get your act together and have every duck in a row, and that's how you're going to be a good little Christian, make sure you got it all covered. No, that's not it. That's not true. You're saved by grace. And if you're doing well at something, do you give God credit for that ability? I don't just mean physically because you can play the keyboard. I mean good at an attitude, good at an ability with people, good at a way of prayer or something. Do you know God gave that to you? What do you have that you didn't receive from God? So we're all in the same boat generally, but, you know, if you want to get the boat moving in the right direction, you know, sometimes you've got to get on the oar and row and in the area that God is showing you in your inbox. Now, somehow something changed. This secret disciple, being a secret disciple wasn't good. But in Mark, we're also told that um, Joseph took courage or came boldly to Pilate. So what gave Joe that courage? I think he must have seen Jesus on the cross. It is the cross of Christ. It's when you see him clearly that you get the courage. And he's only seen to a point because... He doesn't know that the resurrection's coming. That was resurrection. He doesn't know that the resurrection's coming, but he's doing what he can do now. He's not going to fix what he didn't do. That's not going to happen. He's going to do what he can do now. And right now what he can do is take the body of Jesus and bury him. And in Jewish belief... Not only the custom of the Jews of burial that we see that we'll talk about eventually, but the not today. <laughs> but what we do, what we will see is that he the Jewish uh, the other sorry I lost my place the, the other part of Jewish tradition that's believed in that time that to have your family tomb was sacred, and you only would bury people you wouldn't have a friend even a good friend you wouldn't say. Well, when you die, listen, why don't you just get buried in our tomb? we got lots of room. That was not done. It was a sacred thing that your blood family was buried together because you were declaring oneness eternally through this. And it's just part of the Jewish mindset. doesn't necessarily come from Scripture, but here's what does come. What did, you know, Joseph is saying, mi casa su casa, my, my tomb is your tomb. Uh, we don't know what happened later, you know, with that tomb, whether ever the family did use it or if it was just for Jesus. I know people have speculation. I don't know the answer. But I think the intention was that Joseph would use it with his family and that Jesus, I'm including you with my family. And let me say something to you and me. Jesus has done no less for you. He has welcomed you into his tomb. What does that mean? Colossians 2.12. We are buried with him in baptism buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised in him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Romans 6 tells us we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. Jesus has truly called you to oneness with himself, to unity with him, to be a participant with him, one blood with him. Have you been baptized? As a believer, have you chosen that to say yes to Jesus? Don't play games with it. Don't put it off. Don't wait until you're better. You'll never get better than being baptized because you're trusting Jesus and what he You don't do that. That's not possible. That's not a Bible doctrine. It, repentance is part of it, but that's turning to God away from your sin, and you do it by also claiming what he's done for you 
and being baptized. If you haven't been baptized, see me or one of the leaders and we'll baptize you. We'll wake a time. We'll make sure it's really cold out and put ice in the water out there so that we're sure you're serious. All right. And then there's Nicodemus. Now, how would you view someone who put, it wasn't that cold out that night, but they put a heavy, thick stocking cap on, a big, heavy coat, you know, wrapped an overcoat over the top of their head and came at 9 o'clock at night to your door and said, you know, hey, Rick, uh, my name's Nick. I want to see you. Uh, What are you doing like this time with all this? Well, I don't want anybody to know that I'm associated with you. Can I come in? I don't want anyone to know that I'm connected to you or, or looking for any answers from you. I don't want anybody to see us together. How would, how would you feel about that? That's why he came at night. So Nick come, Nick, and he didn't understand what Jesus was saying to him, but he did say, and this is in John 7, he said, does our law judge a man before it knows what he's doing? He, he believed in Jesus. He was sensitive, but he didn't make a stand. And now he's anointing the body of Jesus freely. So it's true that both of these men had a chance to stand up for Jesus in his life. But they didn't. They didn't. They had a chance to stand up for him in his life. I think both of these men, would you agree that both of these men came and had regrets? And I'll tell you what, after the resurrection... I believe they had even more regret. Make sure you understand me. I'm going to explain this to you. I'm not saying that we should live in regret. Some people live in regret. But some people think a Christian doesn't have any regrets. May I say kindly, that's stupid. You can't tell me. You don't, are you going to tell me you have no regrets over anything you've done? What person of any kind could say that? That is not the point of being forgiven, that you have no regrets. Having regrets does not necessarily mean you dwell on them, live in them, and are burdened down by them. But they are a tool. What if you didn't have any regrets for anything you ever did wrong? Guess what you would do? You would do those same things over and over Again, I have regrets in my life. I don't live in them. I'm not depressed and overwhelmed by them. Occasionally, I have tears and a moment of sadness in memories. Is that wrong? I mean, this is a flaky thing when you, oh, no, a Christian only feels happy all the time, only thinks good thoughts. No, a Christian is real because he's a person and people are real. And you have an absolute certain hope that heals you and helps you, but it doesn't get healed and helped unless you face it. It's not a dream world. It's not a pretend world. It's a real world. And in my real world, there are things I've done I did not intend to be this way, but I hurt people. Have you? I didn't intend to be flaky and not be responsible in a situation where I needed to make a stand, but I've done it. Have you? Don't you have regrets over that? I could have stood up for Jesus in certain times that I didn't, and I said, that couldn't be the Lord pushing me. And then I look back later and say, man, even if it wasn't the Lord, what good could have come if I would have spoken up? 
Am I alone? Or you came on so strong, you blew people away with self-righteous attitude sticking out of you. And that also is a regret. (laughs) These guys had regrets. As a Christian, I know I'm forgiven. But I still have regrets. And what those do for me is they, when I was easily manipulated, when I was unwilling to face a hard decision and situation and maybe have somebody be mad at me because I just wanted to be liked so much that I didn't stand up for, I don't mean stand up blatantly and angrily and all, just stand. Just make a clear decision, a clear expression. Or when I reacted immediately out of something and just vented on somebody instead of waiting on the Lord for what I really should do or say. Is anybody with me here? And it turned out bad. And I regret what I've done. Is that wrong? Or is that helpful? Because now, when the same kind of situation comes up, I go, oh, (laughs) I learned from that. You know, there's nothing more important than to me to be honest before God and to be honest with people. Not brutally honest, not mean-spiritedly honest, not unnecessarily honest, you know, where you just talk about things you don't have to that God hasn't put in front of you. Don't, don't make your whole thing, I'm honest, so I just shoot people with my word gun and put them down. For any fly seeing them, big deal that you can do that. There's no strength there. Self-control. Is strength. So I have regrets. And those regrets are good for me in that they drive me to Jesus, that I might not repeat the same actions but be a changed man. That I might have more wisdom and insight into how to live my life before him. That I might be more honest and dedicated. I have not achieved this in perfection, nor have you. But those regrets that we do have that are still with us, though we know we're forgiven, the great thing is they will go with us. Some of them, you'll take it to the grave. The regret. But you won't take it past the grave. Hallelujah. It vaporizes there. You won't go into heaven and spend, oh, let's see, what are you going to do this millennial, you know, this a thousand years, right? We're trying to do time and eternity, so I'll do a thousand. Well, I was going to sit around and mope over all my mistakes I made when I was on the earth. Boy, that sounds a lot more like hell than it does like heaven. You can't do that. It won't be that way. I'm not asking you to do it even now. Nobody needs to remind you that you have regrets, really. I mean, or, but what I am reminding you of is that there's a way to deal with those regrets, and to let God take you forward. So these two men would, 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 would live in shoulda, woulda, coulda, to some degree, till they go to heaven. But they wouldn't dwell in that and live a, a, a useless life of failure. No, they would learn from this experience, and they're already learning it, so I applaud them. Because they can't go back and fix what they didn't do, but they can start right now. So, it wasn't the end for them, it was the beginning. Now, notice, there, Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds of this mixture that's like a paste of myrrh and aloes. 
He got 100 pounds. It means that he probably had two of his servants carrying 50 pounds each. And then somebody's bringing strips of linen. Now, when you watch the movies and stuff, they, many times they have this big linen sheet. They have the shroud of Turin idea and et cetera. But you're going to find out next week if you come back or if you just read it. But what this means is that they would wind you up and put paste in between. And a hundred. Imagine carrying, ladies, what if you had to get up this morning, I need a little makeup. How much do you need? A hundred pounds. You might have had trouble getting in here, you know what I mean? Or out of your bathroom or wherever you vanity. A hundred pounds of pancake makeup. The thing is, is the strips of linen. So they would wind you up. Do you remember when Lazarus came out of the tomb? Jesus said, untie him. It didn't mean there was a bow or a string. Unwrap him. You know, and I'm sorry, I have these cartoon pictures in my mind. You know where I'm going. And he's spinning around and they're taking all this stuff off. But he was encased in this stuff like a mummy. Jesus was encased in this like a mummy. I'll show you next week some interesting things about it. We'll leave it there at the resurrection. We'll see next week. But for today, just let me encourage us, don't be a secret disciple. Bury that testimony and be raised in the real life of Jesus Christ. Yes, I made that up and wrote it. So if you need to be baptized, you know, uh, you know, if you're waiting for a better time, you're doing the same thing that everybody does that doesn't get anywhere until they change. This is not new. It's not unique to you. You're not unique that way. You're just, just another person who does that. You're waiting. You're waiting for something to make it different. When God, you know, if there's something you're waiting for, don't, don't wait. If it's something God wants to do in you, yes, pray and cry out to God. You can't change yourself, but there's things when you see something that God shows you, respond to it. It is time to make a stand. Jesus did say in Mark 10 in several places, He who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. He who does not confess me before men, I will not confess before my Father. Now, there's way more to that story that we can cover right now, but it doesn't mean that if you ever didn't speak up, you're doomed. It can't mean that. Peter's doomed. You know, they're all doomed. But there is a point where you're going to stand up for Jesus. Now, here's the thing that happens as we close. We're almost done. Some people, there's this little being down here in the front row, V-I-N-N-Y. I don't want to say anything more because he might pop up. May I use the dog thing? Okay, so, you know, we're training him to give him to the guiding eyes. And, uh, you know, the thing he has real trouble with is like sometimes Christians do. He's so excited to greet people that he's like vibrates, you know, just like if you sit and, and, and he's just like, there's so much energy coming off of this wire. He's like the spring loaded. He's totally muscle. And he's just like, he can't control himself. So there are some Christians that they go into a situation there. I got a new job. I can't wait to go share Jesus with them. And it's like fly in the door. I'm a Christian. Jesus is Lord. Are you saved? And you know, okay, that person has maybe a tendency but they can't wait. They don't know how to slow down, take a deep breath, and wait on the Lord to give them right moments. Then there's some, it's not that they can't wait. It's that they can't start. 
And it goes on for months into years. And you have regrets because you've left places of employment or relationship situations and you never said anything clearly about Jesus Christ. Right? And if you have a pattern that you can't wait and you're always blurting things out too quick, then you need to learn how to wait on the Lord and hear from him so that your speech and your connection will be more fruitful. Right? Does that make sense? Because your problem isn't that you're just, you know, never going to say another word. Of course, if you do enough of that and get shot down enough, you might say, like Jeremiah, I'm not saying another word. <laughs> but many people, it's on the other side. They can't start. And if you're somebody who you see your pattern in your life is that you go into a new situation, you don't say anything about your faith, you say, when it comes up in the right way, I know I'll share, I think I'll share, I might share. And it's like months turn into months and years and and you, and you have this in you that it's like it gets harder and harder for you to speak up because you haven't done it or if you're someone who finds that you're a newer christian perhaps older christian but newer christian especially and you are easily tempted that people are going to try to tempt you away into sinful behavior what you need to do in my opinion I can't tell you it's the gospel absolute, but I can tell you we're supposed to confess him before men. That's clear. And I can tell you I've seen this work and not work, and I know what works, what helps, is that you need to go on record. I don't mean do that, burst the door open. Hi, my name's Rick. I'm new here. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Hey, you over there, could you stop? I'm a Christian. <laughs> okay, we're not suggesting that. But if you have trouble making a stand, then what you need to do is let it be known. There's a way, there will be a way for you to make it be known. Well, you know, I'm a Christian, so uh, when I can, I go to church on Sunday. When I'm a Christian, I don't, I, I don't really go get drunk, so sorry. No, no, I'm not into drinking. But what if you're tempted by drinking? And people are going to constantly, will they also tempt you if you say I'm a Christian? Sure. But you've drawn a line, you've made a stand, you've gone on record. And some of you, I don't know who you are, but some of you in your situation can apply this and you know, by golly, that's what I need to do. That's what I need. It's in my inbox. Not because Rick said it, because God is talking to my heart. Is I have not gone on record. I haven't made a stand. I haven't done the things that I already know to do. And I keep waiting for things to change. And my friends, things aren't going to change. Now, I don't say that as a prophet. I don't say that with absolute certainty that God can never intervene. He can intervene anytime he wants. But the pattern I've seen in human behavior in the scriptures is that God wants to change us from the inside out. He does it to me. I'm assuming you're no better than me and no worse than me, that like me, you need God to help you yield to him. And he wants to do that. And you know what? I am forgiven because you were forsaken. You know, the, the, like, the answer to this is starting now doesn't mean get it all perfect right now. The answer to this is pretty simple. The answer to this is the reason I can have confidence that you and I can change, can be set free, can go further than we've gone before with Jesus. It's only one reason. There is a fountain filled with blood. 
drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. Lose all their guilty stain, lose all their guilty stain. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. That's what God wants to do in and for and through you and me. Do you need this? Okay. We're going to sing that song.